Welcome to the Bethel Christian Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Eric Capelli. For the congregation, we are glad to have you with us this morning, and we are starting a new sermon series for this month called All for Jesus. It is all about Him, isn't it? We're grateful that Jesus not only saved us and healed us and delivered us, but Jesus is also the King that is returning for His people. We come to church for one reason, and uh, and I think that it's great that we see one another, that we worship together, but one of the main reasons why I gather in church is because we are a representation of the body of Christ. And what that means is we are more than just people who go to church. We are people that believe we are the church because of God living inside of us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so because of that, today, you're going to hear a little bit of a different flip on what it means to be a Christian. I want us in the upcoming weeks to ask ourselves the greatest question that we could ever ask. Who is Jesus to me? What does he mean for my life and the people around me? And what can I do or do differently so that Jesus can be seen in every facet of my life? This month is going to be a hard month, and it's hard for a reason. Because I believe that when Jesus preached the gospel, he didn't just say, everyone come to me and call it a day. He said, come to me. And when he said, come to him, he said, those that follow me, they will be willing to take up my cross and follow me. Following Jesus has a cost. Following Jesus means giving of your everything, even to the point of making you uncomfortable. And so today, and in the upcoming weeks, we are going to try to bring you to this place of understanding, not only is Jesus all that you need, but that Jesus needs all of you. He needs all of you. See, in the world in which we live, and this is preparation, you know, I don't go around running around this church saying, thus saith the Lord this, thus saith the Lord that, but when I'm preaching, I'm preaching with that attitude. I am preaching with the attitude of, thus saith the Lord. The Spirit of God, if he wants to communicate to us, he is trying to get his church ready for one of the greatest hours ever known to the church. And what he wants from you and I is that we rise to that occasion and understanding Jesus needs to be our all in all. Today I want to talk to you about something that is called costly grace. Costly grace, I'll explain in a moment, And it is the counteractive aspect of a concept that is called cheap grace. See, the world and the churches sometimes can preach cheap grace. I'll explain what that is in a moment. But I believe in costly grace. And I'm going to explain that also in a moment. I'm not someone who goes around recommending books other than the Bible because I really can't stand other people's opinions. However, if there was a book that I would ever recommend to anyone living in this time, it would be The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich was a German preacher during the rule and reign of the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. He was someone who stood up to the powers that be to represent the one, Jesus Christ, who was all-powerful. He did not bend the knee to their teachings and their ideologies, but he bent his knee to Christ, and that landed him in a training camp for the Nazi guards called Buchenwald, and it is there that he gave his life for Jesus. See, if I want to learn from someone that's a Christian, I want to learn from someone like him. 
I don't want to learn from someone who can talk a talk and act like they're a believer. I need to learn from people who showed themselves to be believers in the midst of the hottest fires of persecution, in the midst of life's greatest storms. They stood standing when everyone else bowed down. See, God, he's calling us, like I said, to arise. You and I, we are faced more and more with the greatest question of our existence as believers. Some of them are, what does it mean to truly follow Jesus in the day and age in which I live? Not just go to church, not just attend church activities. What does it mean to be a Christian in this day and age? What are the things that Jesus would condemn? Not everything that Jesus said was pie in the sky. Jesus said some hard statements, and we want to treat him as all lovey-dovey. He was, but he said hard things sometimes. What are the things that Jesus would show grace to? Those are the things that we want to be attentive to. And the last question, and there are many more questions I have this month, how would Jesus react to certain situations in my life? Those are the questions that I want us to have in our heads as we learn today. Now, like I said, the Bible speaks about grace. In order to understand who Jesus is, we have to have a deep-rooted, not only understanding, we need to have a personal experience with what grace is. Now, in the American culture, we use the word grace a lot. Someone had grace for me, meaning they had mercy on me. We say the word grace before we eat, say grace. My children, they spoke English, but coming from another culture back into America, when people would say we're going to say grace, they just thought you're saying someone's name, grace. They didn't realize it meant praying for the meal. So in that, we want to make grace really, really, what does it mean biblically, not what have we made it into? A good definition for grace is the Greek word charis, and that word is used 150 times in the New Testament and it is mostly used by the Apostle Paul. He did it on purpose. See, Paul's objective was to take the gospel from the Jewish culture of Jerusalem and then spread it into the multi-diverse, multi-ethnic, pluralistic culture of the Roman Empire. And so as Paul is doing that, and he's writing his letters, he keeps talking about grace. He talks about what it is, but he also talks about what it is not. Let me give you a quick fix theological definition of grace. In Christian theology, grace is the spontaneous, unmerited gift of the divine favor in the salvation of sinners. What that means is you and I could not get saved by the things that we did. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't do anything for it. But when Jesus died on the cross, his precious blood and the work that he accomplished on the cross, that is the only thing that can save you. The only thing. Nothing else can save you like the blood of Jesus. And so it's because of that that the divine influence is operating in individuals like you and I for our regeneration and sanctification. So what that means is grace is not only something we receive when we have a come to Jesus moment. Grace is not only something we receive at the moment when we're born again, but grace is active in our lives even in this moment. Do you know that it is grace that makes you and I look more and more like Jesus? 
Do you know that it is grace that purifies you and helps you to walk the Christian walk? Do you know that it is grace that gives you power in moments where you feel powerless? Do you know that it is grace that sets you apart for the work of God and proclaims you as being holy, faultless, and blameless until the day that Jesus returns? I don't know about you, but I like this grace stuff. Don't you? See, since the inception of the church up until the present state of the church, the message of what we would call, quote-unquote, cheap grace has always been there to tickle people's ears. There's nothing worse than people who tell you what you want to hear. Flattery does not get you anywhere. And so in that, the motto of cheap grace, it cries out things like, come just as you are and stay just as you are. That's a cheap grace message. See, cheap grace is Christianity without a cross. It is salvation without repentance. And it is asking for zero, I mean zero, not a nilch, accountability on the part of a believer. See, we have people that go to churches, they hear these messages of grace and love, and they say, I'll do what I want, when I want, say what I want, and live whatever way I want. No, 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 no. That is not the message of grace. The grace of Jesus is too powerful to leave you in your sin and let you waddle in them. The grace of Jesus takes you out of your sin, cleans you up, and gives you a new life and a new identity. And all you have to do is want it. So today... As we speak about these things, it's good for us to know, what does the Bible say? Let's stand together as we read from the Word of God. Romans, the sixth chapter, verses one through four. And what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the precious grace of Jesus that allows us and beckons and calls us to be transformed. Lord, we pray that we would live in the reality of the cross and in the reality of the resurrection. Lord, give us grace by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, not to do it in our own strength, but to ask you, to plead with you and beg you to do it in the power of Jesus. Lord, let your words speak and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In order to go on about costly grace and what it means biblically, I do want to shortly just mention what costly grace is. No one defines it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who during his time said that there were preachers and believers who liked to hear the things that tickled their ears. They liked to hear the messages of propaganda. They liked to hear the preachers that bowed their knee to Hitler. They liked to hear the leaders that could excuse killing people that they believed that were less than them. And so Bonifer said, no, 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 no. We don't believe in cheap grace that lets you just do whatever you want. We believe in a costly grace. And he defines costly grace as this. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It's not a one-time deal. 
It is the gift which must be asked for, the door that a man must knock on. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ, not just God, quote unquote, not just anyone like a guru. It's asking us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it cost a man or a woman their life. It is grace because it gives that man or woman the only true life. It is costly because it does things like it condemns sin. Oh, we don't like hearing that one. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son, Jesus. And it says, you were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for you and I. It can't be cheap. See, God was not cheap when it came to save you. There's nothing worse than cheap, right? Come on. We like generous. Do we all like generous people? And so God, in his generosity, did something. And oftentimes as believers, we look at the cross and we're amazed by it, but we forget that God had a master plan of salvation. That Jesus, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is not a created being. He always was, he is, and he forevermore will be. And so Jesus was seated on a throne in heaven. And when the Father said, you are going to be the sacrifice for sin, Jesus stepped into humanity. He was praised and worshipped. He was glorified as God. But yet he made himself a fragile, weak, and helpless human being when he became a living little being in Mary's womb. See, we look at the cross as the moment that Jesus gave it all, but Jesus was giving it all from the moment that he left his throne in heaven. Jesus not only did that, but he gave his all on the cross. And Jesus, he is still giving his all for you as the one who intercedes day and night before the throne of the Father. See, because Jesus is not cheap for us, we should not be cheap with him. And what is Jesus looking for from you and I? He is looking for us to go and follow him. He is looking for people that he can say, leave your net and follow me. He's looking for people that say, leave your riches and follow me. He is looking for people that he says to them, come out of that tree, Zacchaeus. Why don't you pay the debt that you owe and then come and follow me? Jesus is still asking us things like, go and sin no more. See, Jesus' message has never changed. He is imparting such a grace and such a love to us, but it comes at the price of our complete devotion to him. That's not cheap, people. That is not cheap. And so this costly grace teaches us three important things that I'm going to focus on this morning. The first thing that I want to tell you about costly grace is that costly grace is grace that is empowering and not enabling. There's a difference between the two. We live in a culture of enablement. We also have allowed the principles of enablement to enter into the church. Oh, you're the way you are because of the life that you lived. You'll react the way you do because of the things that happened to you. Listen. For every 10 people that have gone through something, maybe one reacts bad, but we forget as a society there are nine that react good to it. 
No matter what you've been through is never an excuse to not live for Jesus. No matter what you've been through is never an excuse to not be sold out for him. That is a lie. The lie that we can believe is that we are still living on one end of the cross. And that end of the cross is living in a constant state of I'm a sinner, I need salvation, I feel guilty, I feel awful. Jesus wants us to step over to the other side of the cross where we leave our shame and our guilt and our condemnation and we realize I'm no longer a sinner saved by grace. I am a child of God. I am redeemed. I am justified. I am a new creation. I'm called. I'm chosen. And I have a holy destiny. And if you believe in everything that Jesus has done for you, man, that is empowering. It is better than any TED Talk. It's better than any video or motivational speaker because Jesus gives power within by the power of his spirit that he sent to be in us. The Bible talks about this empowerment for our daily lives. It's found in the book of Titus in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godless and worldly lust to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the NIV, it puts it the following. This kind of grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace does not enable you to stay in sin. What the Bible is showing us is God has given us the power to live a sinless life. God has given us the power to represent him and to live for him every single day. Oh, but you don't know what I face. Well, you don't know what this man faced, but the grace of Jesus was enough for him. See, the grace of Jesus gives you power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is living inside of you when you believe in him. And that grace that he gives you, oh, it picks you up. It turns you around. It sets your feet on solid ground. And it causes you to say no, no, no to the desires of the flesh. See, we live in a society that tries to tell us, give in to your impulses. Yeah, whatever you feel, do it. If it feels good, do it. There are a lot of things that feel good, but they kill you. Yeah? A lot of kids got hyped up on sugar, even their parents recently. Sugar, it tastes really good. It gives you diabetes. Yeah? The fatty food you eat, it might taste good, but it gives you cholesterol and heart issues. Come on, be real. And so we have that kind of mentality that we think, oh, we've, because we like it and because we feel good, it's going to keep doing it. And I'm not just relating it to candy and other things. I am relating it to sinful desires and habits. And when we act like we are a victim to it, we fail to understand the grace of Jesus. See, the grace of Jesus tells us we have not only the right to say no, we have been given power to live a godly life. Come on. Max Lucado, the famous Christian writer, he said the following. He said, grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. I like that one. Grace gives us the power to change and then the power to pull it off. See, Jesus gives us everything we need. 
everything you need to serve him, he gives it to you. Therefore, in Christ, there is no excuse anymore. Come on. Therefore, in Christ, there is no more pointing of the finger. Therefore, in Christ, there is no longer a pointing at who you are or who he made you to be as an excuse or even the family that he brought you into. See, God worked everything in your life to the moment that you came to serve him. Everything that happened, happened for a purpose and a reason to bring you to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so in that is power. In that is a liberation that no one else can give you, a freedom that no one else can allow you to experience other than the freedom that comes from Jesus. That brings me to the second thing about this costly grace that I want to share with you, that the grace of Jesus is enough. And I'm going to say it is not extensive, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. See, the Apostle Paul was a man that was given to revelations. He was preaching the gospel. He was shipwrecked and beaten and thrown into prison and bitten by a snake. And you name it, this guy went through just about everything. He was flogged. He was stoned. And not that kind of stoned, like with real stones. And so 2 Corinthians 12, 9, after receiving revelations, Paul receives a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. It may have been a sickness. It may have been someone who was kind of bothering him. And some um, memes that are on social media, it shows SpongeBob following the apostle Paul around. Yeah, as a thorn in his flesh. Come on, laugh. That's supposed to be funny. And so the Bible shows us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it said, But he said to me, meaning Jesus said to Paul, when he asked him, Remove this thorn from my flesh, he said, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, listen to this, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul, the one who is writing this, he's reacting in this letter. The church of Corinth, they had actually said to Paul, you're not a real apostle. They had said to him, we know there are super apostles. And these super apostles, they get paid nice. They live in nice homes. They live nice lives. They preach Jesus for their own benefit. And so they were saying to Paul, you don't dress as nicely as they do. You don't live in such nice homes as they do. You don't preach the good news feeling messages like the rest. You speak to us. You say things that we don't like. You speak to the sin in our congregation. You speak to the deficiencies. We don't want to hear that. You're not a real apostle. And so Paul goes, okay, good. If I'm not a real apostle, then you tell me who is. See, I'm an apostle because I had a revelation of who Jesus is. He says, I'm an apostle because he didn't even use his name. He said, someone I know a few years ago was taken up into the third heaven to see things that a human being cannot even express. And so because of that, he was given a thorn in the flesh that made him weak. And Paul had every reason to complain about it. Come on, this guy is preaching Jesus. He's not just experiencing hardship in life because it's hardship. 
He's experiencing blatant hardship because he's preaching Jesus. He is preaching the kingdom. He's seeing signs and wonders, but they are arresting him. They're beating him. They're mocking him. They're gossiping about him. And to make the matter even worse, the church is being mean to him. The very guy who starts their church, they have an attitude problem with him. And Paul says, you know what? You can count all these things against me. And you know what? He was a human being just like we were. We go through things, don't we? We go through rough days that we feel like, I cannot take it anymore. And Paul was having one of those days. He had been through a lot for the sake of the gospel, and he was inflicted with something we don't know, but it was annoying for him. And he said to God, can you please touch me and heal me? And God's answer, Jesus' answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. And we hear that and we think, oh, that's so wonderful. Even first service, they clap at that. I'm like, what are we clapping at? What are we clapping at? Picture going through your worst day for the gospel and your body is acting up. You think Paul should have gotten a break. Come on. I think the dude should have gotten a break, don't you? And he doesn't get a break because Jesus says to him, my grace, my power that is working within you is more than enough. When you are weak, I am strong. In your weakest, most helpless, most darkest moment, that is where I can show my power through you. I say all the time, that is only a message the Holy Spirit can preach to us. Because God forbid one of you were to say to me, Pastor Eric, his grace is enough when I'm going through it. Yeah, something else is going to be enough. Yeah, if someone said it to you, I know you feel the same way. But see, the Spirit of God, he gives you what you need when you need it. How do I know this? Because 2 Corinthians 9.8 says the following, and I love this scripture. It says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Don't you love all the adjectives there? Everything, always, in everything. Paul is being quite a drama queen. Yeah? He's exaggerating it, but he's showing this grace that God has. It is more than just what saves you. It is the grace that says, I think I can, I think I can, but then I know I can, I know I can. I can do all things through Christ. And so that is what grace is. It is not just getting saved from your sin. It is the power to stand for Jesus in the midst of everything. The writer Brenning Manning, who wrote a lot of beautiful things about grace, he said the following. He said, grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff, with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. Grace is enough. What is Manning trying to say? Sometimes you and I, when we're in our moments, in the words of Anne of Green Gables, we're in the depths of despair. When we're in those moments of deep despair, sometimes we are looking at others to fill the void and the need within us. I call those people grace suckers. Yeah? Grace suckers are people that don't know how to go to Jesus on their own. Grace suckers are people that don't understand that they can go directly to the throne of grace in their time of need. And so when people that are grace suckers are going through it, they are looking at other men and women of God that know how to hold on to Jesus, and they're saying things like, you pray for me. 
I sometimes have looked at other Christians and go, pray for yourself. It's not that I don't want to pray for you. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens, so don't get me wrong. But there are people out there, they don't go to Jesus themselves. They treat you and I like we're the mediators of the new covenant. Jesus did away with the old system. You and I don't need a high priest anymore. We don't need a priest to pardon us from our sin. We have Jesus who is the great high priest. We can go to him 24 hours a day and seven days a week. His grace is enough. It's enough for me. The third thing that this grace shows us is that grace is expressive and not explosive. Get ready for this one. The reason why I say grace is expressive and not explosive are there are believers who first experience the grace of God, but because of circumstances, they become resentful, they become embittered, and in their moments of feeling powerless, and I think we all can attest to moments like this. I'm not, I'm not speaking to someone. I'm speaking to me, too. There are moments when we feel so powerless because of the things around us that instead of reacting in grace, we are exploding. And we're being called to express the grace of God to a world that doesn't know him. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, Paul kind of shows us how he expresses grace through his life. It says in Acts 20, 22 through 24, it says, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course or the race set before me and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. See, Paul knew that what he was doing for Jesus needed to end strong. There are many people who come to Christ and they hear the message of Jesus and in the beginning, oh, they're on fire. But the Christian life is not about the fire in a moment that you got saved. The Christian life is not how you begin the race. It is how do you end it. See, we have marathons on TV. We watch the Olympic Games. And you could have someone that's in the start blocks and they, they, they shoot the gun off. And the person begins really strong. But it doesn't mean that they're the winner. In order to run the race, Paul says, when you are running the race, you've got to make sure that you keep running so that you don't disqualify yourself. You are an example, not by the things you do for others, but you are an example by the way that you go after Jesus with everything in you. And so Paul is running the race, and in order to be the best runner, he is creating almost like this wind current behind him that all those that want to follow can kind of upsweep with him in that wind to follow Jesus wherever he's leading. And that's a grace. That's a grace that expresses itself in a completely different way. That grace is not saying to me, oh, look at me, I'm the example, I'm the best Christian that ever lived. That grace shows itself not in your words, but in your actions. That grace shows itself in your darkest moments. How do you act? How do you react as a believer? The other famous... German theologian that lived along the same time as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, he wrote the following. He said, grace must find expression in life, otherwise it is not grace. Yeah? 
So grace that only finds itself in church or at a prayer meeting with other believers is not really grace. See, grace is when you live for Jesus on Monday morning. Grace is when you go to work and you carry Jesus with you. Grace is the moment when you're on the phone and they're saying, press one for this, press two for this, three for this, and then they put you on hold for 10 hours. Those are things that test the grace of God inside of you. And believe me, no one likes it. But those moments show us how much grace is really operating in my life. How much do I believe in the work of God inside of me? In closing this morning, there's a letter that I want to read to you. It's a letter that was written in 1775 in colonial America. A letter from Mr. John Newton to Mrs. John Thornton. The letter has to do with the evils and the problems in society that they are going through and how Mr. Newton is telling Mrs. Thornton that the things that they're experiencing as believers that are kind of making them hardened toward people are things that do not really reflect the grace of Jesus in their lives. I'm going to read that letter to you. I'll start with a little pre-note here or a prelude. It says, the following is an excerpt from the letter from John Newton to Mrs. John Thornton in November 1775. How fitting. We're in November too. Although it was written two and a half centuries ago, it is remarkably relevant to our modern experience, especially as we seek to live out our callings to love our neighbors in a pluralistic society. So here's the start of the letter. He says, too much of that impatience which you speak of toward those who differ from us in some religious sentiments is observable on all sides. I do not consider it as the fault of a few individuals or of this or that party. So much is the effect of that inherent imperfection which is common to our whole race. Anger and scorn are equally unbecoming in those who profess to be followers of the meek and lowly Jesus, and who acknowledge themselves to be both sinful and fallible. But too often, something of this leaven, meaning the sin of those things, will be found cleaving to the best characters and mixed with honest endeavors to serve the best cause. And this is the last paragraph. It says, but thus it was from the beginning. And we have reason to confess that we are no better than the apostles were, that though they meant well, manifested once and again a wrong spirit in their zeal. Luke 9:54 is quoted, and that's when the disciples are asking Jesus who will be the greatest in heaven and who gets to sit at his right side. Observation and experience contribute by the grace of God gradually to soften and sweeten our spirits. But then there will always be ground for mutual forbearance and mutual forgiveness on this head. However, so far as I may judge myself, I think this hastiness is not my most easily besetting sin. So what Mr. Newton is trying to convey to Mrs. Johnson is, is that society around them might not be serving Jesus the way that they should. But what he's trying to convey to her is, is that their attitudes and the grace that they've received should not be tempered or hardened by the actions of others. What he's saying is, even though society seems to be getting more and more difficult, even though people are not receiving our message, even though people don't want to acknowledge Jesus living in our lives, we are supposed to become softer and not harder. 
Yikes. The other day I was making something in the house. I, don't, I think it was a cup of tea. And I wanted to put some honey in it. I had been given honey by a cousin of mine when I was sick a few years ago when I was traveling from the Netherlands to the U.S. And that honey, it sat in the back of a car. It made it into the house. Honey, you can eat it 2,000 years later, by the way. It's really great stuff. However, this honey, because the jar was not air sealed correctly, it became very hard. So I was kind of annoyed because I wanted it in my tea. So I had honey. Then we had another squeezable thing of honey. That was hard. Then there finally was honey that was coming out, and I squeezed it with all of my might, and I only got one little drop of honey. And that's a funny idea of what it means to be hardened. When our hearts are hardened, they are actually of no use. They're like that hardened honey, even though it's sweet, even though the color is golden, even though we want to put it in our tea to give it a little bit of a kick, it's useless. And our hearts sometimes can become useless. Our hearts can become hardened, our hearts can become callous, because we experience things around us that make us feel powerless and helpless. Have you ever had those moments? Are you having those moments presently? No one likes to go through them. But let Jesus serve as our example. Let people like Paul serve as our example. Let people like Mr. Newton and Mrs. Thornton serve as our example as he says to us, observation and experience contribute by the grace of God gradually to soften and sweeten our spirits. But then there will always be ground for mutual forbearance and mutual forgiveness on this head. And really what I want to say to that is grace expresses itself in love. Grace genuinely expresses itself in love. Why? Because the Bible shows us that while you and I were in our sin, Jesus died for us. We didn't deserve it. There is no one that deserves it. There's not a goody two-shoes on the planet. There are people that try to act that way. One time, even in the Netherlands when I was preaching, I did a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We had this woman in our church. She was like a little church mouse. She was like mother church, so to speak. And then after service, she came up to me. She said, I feel so guilty. I feel so convicted. I said, why? Like, what happened? I said, what have you ever done? She said, in my past, I committed adultery and no one knew about it. See, we don't, what I'm saying with that is we don't know other people. We don't know what is going on in the heart of someone else, but we do know what is going on in the depths of our own heart. We all need grace. We all need salvation. We all need to walk out and live out grace. Why? Because we're all sinners. And the reason why Jesus came was to transform us from sinners into children of God. The reason why Jesus came was to turn us from victims into more than overcomers. The reason why Jesus came was to take us from darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. This is all about grace. And when we receive grace and when we really live in grace, we walk it, we talk it, we sing it, we believe it, we show it, and we do it for other people. Jesus was our greatest example in grace. Let's stand together on this morning as we celebrate communion and think about this costly grace of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover meal that reminded the Jewish people of their deliverance from Egypt. 
And the bread had had a certain meaning for them for more than 2,000 years at that point. And so Jesus, as he's speaking about the new covenant, as he's speaking about the new life that God is trying to give to them, he takes the bread that had one meaning, but now he's giving it a new meaning, and he says, this bread, you've eaten it. And he doesn't say those words exactly, but they know what point he's getting to. And he said, this bread that once stood for the sin in our lives that was like leaven rising in bread that we can't have on this night. He says, now I'm giving this body a new meaning, and this body that you're about to eat, this bread is representative of my body that was broken for you. You have been bought with a heavy, heavy price. Your life is not your own, it says in the New Testament. And so Jesus, he gave thanks, and when he gave thanks, he broke the bread and he handed it out to his fellow disciples, and he said, do this in remembrance of me until I come. And so Jesus, he let that body represent the very brokenness that was in us. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world that needs a lot of grace, and sometimes they do not deserve it, but thank God Jesus gave it to you and I when we didn't deserve it either. That's what grace is, getting what you do not deserve. And so because of that, we can take the body of Jesus and give him thanks because he takes our brokenness and he makes us whole. We're no longer broken. We're no longer broken because of society telling us we're broken. We're no longer feeling bad because of what side of the tracks we were born on. We're no longer feeling bad because we were born, whether a man or a woman or a certain race or ethnic background or financial background. It doesn't matter at the cross of Christ anymore. At the cross of Jesus, we all get equal opportunity. At the cross of Jesus, the brokenness that you and I experience from a life of hardship, we become whole because of him. Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that your body was broken to make us whole. And so, Lord, as we eat today, we are saying there is no excuse anymore. You have given me all that I need from go, to go from brokenness to wholeness. Jesus, make me whole. That's my prayer today. Let us eat together. On that very same night that Jesus was betrayed, it was custom to take many glasses of wine and lift them up, and each of the glasses symbolized something. Some symbolized deliverance, others salvation, others fulfillment. But Jesus, when he took the cup, he raised what was called the cup of the Messiah, and he said to them, this, the cup of the Messiah, this is symbolic of my blood that is shed for you. The book of Hebrews shows us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so because Jesus shed his costly blood, we're not talking about a fellow human being here, church. He was. He was fully human. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to make a theological misquote here. But Jesus was fully God. He did not deserve to die. He didn't even have to come. But Jesus willingly came and offered himself up like a servant, like a slave, dying on the cross so that his blood, his grace, his mercy would be more than enough. Not only to save us, but to keep us until the day that he returns. Before we drink this morning, the Bible invites us to examine our hearts, and it says, if you have anything against anyone, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, 
And what I mean by that is, it is not only against someone you go to church with, someone in your family, and someone you work with. There are people that hold grudges against people they don't even know. There are people that hold grudges against people they see on TV and read about in a magazine. They form opinions and judgments and all kinds of things, and Jesus is saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, in order to be forgiven, we need to learn to forgive. That is what grace is about. The same grace you give out to others is the same grace that you'll receive. And so as we drink today, let us drink with a pure conscience of knowing that we can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know what we can pray? Father, forgive me, because sometimes I'm a dodo too. Jesus, we give you thanks for your blood. We give you thanks that you shed your blood when we didn't deserve it. And so today it is a reminder for us to forgive others and to show mercy for those that don't deserve it. Lord, sometimes that's extremely difficult, but you modeled it in everything you said, everything you did. And so Jesus, I pray as we drink today that we would not only just drink a cup of grape juice, but that we would drink the reality of your kingdom that says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's drink. Jesus, we give you praise. We thank you this morning. Lord, we lift our hands and we open our hearts to you. We pray that you would move upon us, Lord, and soften us and sweeten us by the power of grace today. Lord, we don't want to live in our own strength, but we want to live in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would touch people today, that you would heal minds touch bodies, bring restoration. Lord, you are able. I'd like to ask the altar team to make their way to the front. If you need prayer before you leave today, the altar team will be available to you. We're rounding off the service right now, so for those that are watching on live stream, God bless you. Have a Thanks for tuning in to the Bethel Christian Church Message of the Week. Head to BethelCC.org to stay up to date with everything that's going on at Bethel Christian Church.